Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This week, we're going to focus on the question of what should be done to constrain the dominance of the tech platforms and to regulate the ways in which they control aspects of our economy, markets, and the public sphere. First up, I talk with Alec McGillis, a reporter for ProPublica that has just written a book that considers Amazon's dominance and what it means for the wealth of American cities and people. Then, we listened to a panel I moderated last week on regulation of the social media companies that was organized by Betaworks Studios as part of its Betalab Fix the Internet program, which you can learn more about at betaworks-studios.com slash betalab. Here's Alec McGillis. I'm Alec McGillis. I'm a reporter at ProPublica. I live in Baltimore, and I'm the author of Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America, which is coming out on March 16th. In advance of the book, you had a piece in The Times this week. I did. Um, it was a piece looking at what is sort of the central kind of kernel of the book, which is the growing divide between Baltimore and Washington. Um, this, the book is broadly about regional, regional inequality in America, the growing gaps between places in this country, not just the urban-rural gap, but the gap between cities, between winner-take-all cities like, like Washington and kind of left-behind cities like Baltimore. And it's a nationwide book, nationwide in scope, but, I, but definitely the, the divide between Baltimore and D.C., these two cities just 40 miles apart that have just grown light years apart in terms of prosperity was really kind of a central inspiration for the book, having watched this, this divide growing over the years, living here both between Baltimore and Washington. So it was, I was, it was great to see that, that slice of it getting out there in the Times. Your writing for ProPublica shows a general concern for inequality. You've written about for-profit schools, the plight of coal miners, how dollar stores fostered violence and neglect in poor communities, struggle with cities like Dayton. Now Amazon. Why is Amazon your focus? I've been wanting for a while now to write about to write about this problem of, of regional inequality and was thinking for a long time about how to attack it in a book, how to frame it. And what I finally settled on was actually to use Amazon as, as the frame for it for two reasons. One is that Amazon is so ubiquitous in America now that it's just a handy thread to kind of take you around the country. It's, it's something that's everywhere. It's become more and more dominant. It's in all of our lives in all sorts of different ways. And, and, it, and it manifests itself in all these different ways. You know, there's the, the warehouses, the, the headquarters, towns, the, the data centers, all these different forms in which it, it shows up in our landscape. And so it's just a handy thread in that sense. You can kind of take, take you around what we are now as America. But it's also a, um, a useful frame for the subject because Amazon itself has been contributing to this problem of regional inequality and is a driver of it and an explanation for it to the extent that regional inequality is based partly in economic concentration. I mean, basically, the, the more that certain industries, certain sectors become concentrated in certain companies, the more prosperity flows to the places where those companies are based. And, and you end up with this terrible imbalance we have today where you have 
hyper prosperous cities that are unaffordable and over congested, and then a whole bunch of um, smaller mid sized cities that are really struggling. Um, and it's an imbalance that's not good for anyone. And so Amazon really worked as a as a frame to to attack that question. The book is not about Amazon itself, really. It's about sort of America in the shadow of Amazon. So uh, I was reading reviews of the book, Carolyn Kellogg in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, she wrote, Alec McGillis is a responsible, serious journalist who writes for ProPublica and wins awards for his in-depth reporting on economics and society. But his new book is a horror story. And she kind of confirmed what you, you said. She said, you know, this, this is much more than a story of retail. It's about real estate. It's about lobbying, data centers, the CIA. Uh, it's about revolving doors in Washington, D.C. and cardboard folders in Ohio. It's about a social fabric disintegrating while corporations duck paying taxes. It's about a stunning transfer of wealth into Amazon's coffers all before the COVID-19 pandemic began and the company reaped even more. Can we talk just for a minute about the platform economics that underlie Amazon and the role that you see that playing across all those threads? Yeah, I mean, it's you know now recognized as a as a, as a huge problem and something that our antitrust laws were basically not up to dealing with the extent to which they have managed to become, you know, both looking just at the, you know, at the retail sector, both the, the platform itself and then a competitor on the platform. They have both this platform where, where we're doing now some estimates say 50% of our e-commerce shopping. And then they are also selling, selling on that platform themselves. Um, and, um, you know, and, and now even, even to the point of coming up of producing their own um, private label um, merchandise and 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 selling against competitors who they have all this data on because they are the owners of the platforms to the point where they can now see if if, if a given item of a some thirty mark, third party merchant out there is doing well and and then can basically just come up with their own version of that product their own sort of um, rip off version of that product and and drive the this popular rival out of business i mean it's just it's extraordinarily blunt in that sense. One of the, the chapter in my book that focuses most on, on this question, on the real sort of the retail dominance question is, is set down in El Paso, where I spent a lot of time with office supply dealers. These are the, you know small companies, small locally owned companies that sell office supplies to local businesses, school districts, governments, really kind of like the the Dunder Mifflins of, of El Paso. And, and watching them just get come under such pressure from Amazon to to start selling on the marketplace um, on their uh, where f- with all the other third party per- party merchants and um, Amazon just coming at them really hard saying look you know if you come if you sell through us you, you'll be able to sell to the whole world it's you know it's the, the you know the greatest thing ever and 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 don't worry your local customers can still buy from you on the marketplace um, they just won't be buying from you directly they'll buy, be buying from you on the marketplace and what this of course leaves out is that that going that route means that amazon takes a hefty cut you know anywhere from from like 15 to 30% depending on how much you feel pressured to get from them in services and so this this chapter just describes you know in, in really kind of a sort of narrative form what these dealers were going through um, and I, I even managed to slip into a closed door session where amazon was putting an especially hard sell um, on a bunch of these dealers in el paso um, and it was just really striking to watch that happening up close you know, you, you talk in the New York Times piece, you highlight the outcomes for some of the 
countries, smaller cities, or less sort of tech-centric cities. Maybe talk about the sort of impact of the kind of economics of Amazon, you know, outside of the cities that have commanded this type of wealth. You know, to put it very crudely, we what we've ended up with is in in these various sectors is is the fact that business and activity and money, revenue, and and just you know, basic commerce that used to be distributed all around the country in in ways big and small is now increasingly being sucked into certain places, in the places where the dominant companies in those realms now uh, exist. And I mean, you see it, you see it in my industry of the media, where media ad revenue, which is the lifeblood of journalism, uh, more so than subscription dollars, that used to be spread all around the country to newspapers, to radio, to TV stations, um, is now dominated. Digital ad revenue, which is now the the main game, is dominated. 60% of digital ad revenue goes to just two companies, Google and Facebook. Amazon is is now rapidly kind of coming up a strong third in that field. And so all that that revenue, it just kind of goes whoosh to to the place where Google and Facebook is, are based, which is the Bay Area. And you have now, so you end up with this kind of dystopian level of wealth in the Bay Area and, and, and inequality within the Bay Area. And then and then retail, um, similarly, used to have commercial activity and business spread all around the country, mom and pops, all the way up to you know regional department stores and you know all different levels of companies now you know, roughly half of e-commerce money goes to this one company that is based in Seattle and is also now setting up shop in Washington, D.C. And so you end up, one other example I use in the book, spent a lot of time in York, Pennsylvania, which was the home of a really kind of remarkable small regional department store chain, which you've probably heard of because it got sort of big near the end called the Bonton. Um, and Bont- I tell the story of this of this one department store that was founded back in the late 19th century by by the son of, of German Jewish immigrants who um, sort of spread out across Pennsylvania. All the sons spread out across Pennsylvania. Each one picked a different city to start um, start a store in. And the son who went to York, Pennsylvania, um, down below Harrisburg, um, became incredibly successful. And his stores spread all across Pennsylvania, the Mid-Atlantic, Northeast, and eventually Midwest. And uh, only, only to sort of finally fall in the last couple of years um, under the the rise of e-commerce, which they just simply weren't able to to adjust to, and in the rise of Amazon, and and so you have a, that's a classic example where where a city that the small city that was was once the home, the headquarters of this very successful department store, regional department store chain, um, it loses that not only its stores sell the stores themselves of which they had several um so now you have all these sort of empty empty sites there in york but it also loses the headquarters operation all the sort of the the philanthropic um weight and and sort of civic weight that came with being the home to the bonton now there's just there's nothing so it's interesting i mean i in my own life I, you know, I grew up in a small town in virginia um and you know it lost its sort of manufacturing uh giants which were textiles um and a couple of other industries you know uh, some time ago kind of went through that same trajectory that you describe um over the last 40 years um they're quite excited that now a casino 
uh, intends to open. Yeah. Um, but one of the details that you included in the Times piece that I found particularly uh, compelling was the the repurposing of the bricks from a manufacturing plant in Baltimore, um, which is something I also saw happen in the town where I grew up. Um, just talk a little bit about the bricks. There, there are actually two different kinds of bricks in that piece, and they're both they both have a story behind them. Um, the the core, sort of the, the really kind of emotional core of the book um, is chapter four, and it's the story of what happened at a place called Sparrows Point, which is a peninsula outside Baltimore that became home to a huge steel plant um, owned by Bethlehem Steel that by 1958 was the largest steel plant in the world. It was just an extraordinary place, um, just an incredibly dense thicket of 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 a steel plant down there on the water that not only had all all the, these massive mills, but also had an entire company town like right in the middle of the mills, um, about 5,000 people with a grid of streets and downtown and, and all the works. And the that 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 mill that 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 steel plant um, finally went out of business in 2012. It had been declining for many years and finally shut down for good in 2012. And it has been completely wiped clear off this peninsula. It's the eeriest thing. You had this the largest steel plant in the world. This entire skyline is now gone, and it's just it's it's just erased off this plain along along the water, uh, along with the town that was there. And in its place now is, is a huge, basically like logistics industrial business park. You have um, a sea of warehouses um, that have sprung up just in the last few years. And, um, and two of them are Amazon warehouses. They have not one, but two large warehouses there. And I, I, I found a man who spent 30 years working at Beth Steele, making really good money, um, doing incredibly difficult, dangerous work, developing a really strong sense of belonging and purpose and camaraderie, who then in recent years in his 60s went back to work at Amazon as a forklift driver, making only $15 an hour, less than half of what he made at Beth Steele, feeling, of course, far less purpose and camaraderie in the in these, this isolated where, isolating warehouse. Lasted only a few years there before he quit. And I went back to Sparrow's Point uh, while I was doing the piece to help a guy who also worked at the steel plant and is very interested in trying to save its heritage. We ended up in a dumpster on the uh, on the peninsula there where they tossed a bunch of the old bricks from the headquarters building. We were in this dumpster throwing all the regular trash that was in over over the top of the bricks, throwing out, out the regular trash into another dumpster to try to find the bricks. He wanted to use the bricks for sort of a heritage, local heritage projects that he's been working on to sort of tell the story of of the of the plant meanwhile i have also been spending time with a guy who by the name of max pollock really fascinating young guy who has been involved in the demolition of row houses around baltimore baltimore has has been shrinking dramatically over the decades populations down from about 950,000 at its peak to now below 600,000 and that's of course linked very much to economic trends, including the disappearance of Beth Steele. And so he's he's been involved in helping to demolish these buildings, the all these these lovely old row houses in East and West Baltimore, and to reclaim some of the bricks from those demolitions 
for repurposing, for reuse elsewhere, because Baltimore was known for its having for having especially lovely bricks. Um, there was the, the the geology here just lent itself to really good bricks, and so they're in high demand to, to have to have these bricks for your construction renovation projects. Then he cleans up the bricks as his workers clean up the bricks, and they sell them for other projects. And a lot of the his customers are down in Washington D.C. and and one day um, I went with him to go inspect one of his clients down there was a new condo complex in a rapidly gentrifying part of Washington where they had they had built this big condo complex complex called Chapman Stables and it was sort of supposed to evoke the stables that used to be at that site but they needed all these bricks to really give it a real historic historical aura historical vibe and so they bought all these bricks from from Baltimore and I was down there with with Max and it was just really it was really pretty it was pretty heartbreaking actually to have been on the blocks in Baltimore where you're seeing these buildings being just torn down one after another and then to see the bricks down in DC in this condo complex where apartments are going to cost up to a million bucks and what was so striking is that Max knows his bricks so well that he stood in front of this one wall and he was he pointed to different rows of the bricks and he knew exactly which street in Baltimore those bricks had come from based on on the, on the, the markings on the bricks and that to me was just it was such a powerful moment how how the the actual material of one city that has declined for all these reasons being taken down just 40 miles down the road to give a sort of historical facade to the prosperity the hyper prosperity of another city just down the road we're in a different political moment now and there seems to be some signs that you know various parties are interested in doing something about these types of trends, dealing with the antitrust question, possibly applying some fresh thinking to the problem, and certainly addressing inequality. Do you have hope that that some of these trends can be sort of met with resistance? I do have some hope. I mean, I I had hope even the last year or two, even before the, the new administration came in, because what you saw on this issue was something very rare these days, which is some semblance of a bipartisan agreement that this is a problem, that the tech giants, the monopoly of the tech giants is a problem. And, and the two parties had different reasons, of course, for, for, for thinking this. They were coming from different places and different motivations. And you know, part of it on the Republican side was you know, sort of anger over there, feeling as if the social media companies kind of um, somehow discriminate against them and discriminate against their their content. Um, and then, and of course, just the animus against the quote, Amazon, Washington Post. Um, um, the fact that, that Bezos owns owns a that quote, liberal paper. But at least there was some real potential there for bipartisan action. And you've, and you've just, you've seen these, these, those hearings that were being held the last couple of years um, in both chambers, but especially the House, were tough and they were bracing and, and substantive and, and really seemed to be going somewhere. And then now we have a new administration, which is definitely showing signs of, of taking this all very seriously. I mean, the fact that they are apparently going to appoint Lena Khan to the FTC, this very sharp young person who basically, you know, really just cannot overstate the role that she had in, in changing the conversation on this with her, the paper she did on Amazon as a law student, just really kind of remarkable to think about that. Um, and now here she is heading to the FDC. Tim Wu, another really important important voice on this front, is is also coming to the fold at the White House. Um, 
and there, I mean, there are still some. We'll have to see some the other some key appointments still to be made on the sort of enforcement side within Department of Justice. Some of the key jobs there that that really kind of actually determine what's going to be allowed to fly and what's not um, when it comes to to mergers. In a way, what we're seeing, what the, the key the key way of thinking about this is, how much will the Biden team on this depart from the Obama team? There's just it's pretty you know recognized now that the even by some of the people who were in the Obama administration uh, on this front, that they did not do nearly enough, that they really just were kind of asleep at the switch um, as, as, as the tech giants' dominance just mass grew massively in those eight years of the Obama administration. And this is one of the key places where Biden has to decide how much he wants to sort of stay, kind of return to basically the, the, the Obama way or, or chart a new way. One, what makes it, of course, especially interesting to watch is are some of the personal dynamics. The fact that, for instance, um, Biden's own spokesman before he became Obama spokesman was Jay Carney, who's now, of course, the king of all PR and and lobbying for Amazon. Um, but but for the time being, it definitely looks as if as if the Biden White House is is wanting to really um, break from from the Obama coziness with Silicon Valley. Part of this is about imbalance. You know, um, there were bad things about those company towns too. You know, having grown up in one, I know the stories of, you know, the <laughs> the wrongs of, of Dan River Mills, for instance, yep. the, the town it built. How do you assess nature of that, that imbalance with regard to the past? Um, this can't be about sort of just, you know, yearning for, you know, the 1950s again, right? No, it can't. And I mean, one thing that just really jumped out of me when I was doing all my research for the book was just how, just how dangerous those jobs at Beth Steele had been. I mean, there it was just incredible. Just the, the the details of these accidents, the details of the uh, some of the, the the numbers of the accidents, the fatalities, and although things did get better once the once the mill was unionized and there was more sort of worker input into sort of how things were run at the mill. The way I assess it, you know, broadly is you, you can quantify it. I mean, the the gap between, we've always had poorer and richer places in this country, um, of course, but the gaps between between them has have grown dramatically. Um, just just the way we've seen the massive growth, the growth of inequality kind of on the income scale, you know, the, the top 1%, the 99% and all that, you're seeing similar growing gaps between places. Um, and there's just, you just look at it, the, you know, the, the number of, there used to be only a small number of places in this country that were more than 20% wealthier than than the, the norm, or less than 20% wealthier than the norm. That most most of where we lived was sort of in the, in a band, a pretty close band, and now whole swaths of the country are more than 20% wealthy or less than 20% wealthy than the norm. And and you feel this when you go around the country, right? We've all felt this. Like I mean, you you go from now. You you go from my hometown of Pittsfield, Mass. You know, GE town, former GE town, Western Mass. Go from there to Boston, and the the gap that you feel there is just way larger than it used to be. Um, you go between between Danville and Arlington um, in Virginia, and it's just mind blowing, right? You feel this, and then the, or or between Baltimore and Washington. When I now make that trip between Baltimore and Washington. Just again, just forty miles. I feel really almost, really almost kind of a vertigo when I come to Washington now from Baltimore. Like that, the the level of wealth and and just prosperity that's on display there, and is it just it's almost dizzying. Um, and and so 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 that's that's 
you know that can be quantified and um but then you know in 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 terms of the the you know the work that you would have had in these company towns and what we have now you know just to take the example of sparrows point and what's happened there where you go from a steel plant to the warehouses some might say well you know the warehouses are better than nothing, right? I mean, at least there's something there now. And and that's certainly what the company would, will tell you. I, you know, the company kept saying to me, you know, at least we're, we're providing some kind of like entry-level low-wage work to people here. That's better than nothing. But I mean, you just compare, you compare what was, what was there in terms of the work with what's there now. And, and for me, it comes down to, to purpose. I mean, the sense of purpose that, that a worker at Beth Steele felt felt the sense of community that they felt both among their own, their, all their 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 colleagues, um, the men and women they worked with, and then also in the the sort of the the, the company towns that they went back to where there was much more of a sense they were part of something together. I was talking to the the guy who I was looking for the bricks with in the in the dumpster the other just the other day, and and he talked about how about watching people now. He, he still lives down there and he sees the the people who work at the warehouses come tearing out of the, the warehouse after their shift is done, just flying out on the highway there on the roads there to get back home, to get the hell out away from the warehouse, you know, driving home on their own and just screaming out of the parking lot basically. And how different that was than back when he worked there at the steel mill where you came out, you know, with the guys on your shift, a lot of, often you would just sort of just like basically roll into the bar, right? And you were together, and you were, and and, and you went into in, in the morning at the start of the shift. You went in together. He said it was like he always felt like he was going in. He felt like he was a firefighter, the way that they would. You kind of went in, and you all had each other's back, and you was and it was and it was like okay, here we are again together, guys. How much steel are we going to roll today? Um, and this this sense of togetherness and purpose and and meaning. Um, so it's not just that you were making twice as much money, at least twice as much money back then um, in these working class jobs. It was that you had this much more of a sense of purpose and meaning. And, and that's partly why I called this book Fulfillment. It's that loss of, of meaning and of fulfillment um, in, in this new realm today. Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America is the name of the book. Alec, thank you. Thank you. Next up, we have a panel discussion I moderated for the Beta Lab Fix the Internet program at Betaworks. The discussion focuses on priorities for the regulation of social media and features Yael Eisenstadt, a researcher in residence at Beta Lab who was formerly a CIA officer, a White House advisor, and the global head of elections integrity operations for political advertising at Facebook, Jason Kent, the CEO of Digital Content Next, a trade association that advocates for media companies such as the New York Times, Condé Nast, ESPN, Vox, Politico, and Insider. And finally, Maricha Schock, International Policy Director at Stanford University Cyber Policy Center and International Policy Fellow at Stanford's Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Between 2009 and 2019, Maricha served as a member of the European Parliament for the Dutch Liberal Democratic Party, where she focused on trade, foreign affairs, and technology policies. I asked the panel to talk about how they think about the role of regulation and what they see as priorities. Here's Maricha. When I think about this question of regulation, I think it's it's really important to think back about what are we regulating for? And 
And in Europe, there's slightly more of a sort of context that laws, regulations are enabling for freedoms. And that aspect seems to be lost oftentimes when I hear American friends or the American debate, where the idea is really, and perhaps this is a spin from the big tech corporations in Silicon Valley, but that any kind of regulatory initiative that might impact technology is either regulating the internet instead of, for example, protecting people from discrimination. Uh, and so the, the thinking about regulation and then asking what for is a next step that I think we all need in order to assess whether regulation is a good or a bad idea. Because otherwise, we, we may hear Mark Zuckerberg saying, we want regulation now, ladies and gentlemen. But as soon as the Australian government comes up with regulation, they don't like it. And actually, it's not surprising because regulation is a tool to achieve an objective. It's not an end in and of itself. It's a process, um, a step towards an outcome. And so that's the way I think about it. Now, specifically when it comes to content, one other brief, but I think also sort of more fundamental question that I keep asking myself is, have we for too long looked at parts of the question around content moderation, speech online, by focusing so much at freedom of expression uh, and not looking at where, for example, freedom of expression clashes with other very important rights, such as the protection of public health, quite current in the context of COVID-19, or uh, the obligation of the state to maintain public order, for example, or to protect people from violence or hatred or harassment or other kinds of far-reaching far effects that may in some instances be the result of speech. I guess I'm making the case for being one more specific about what we mean by regulation and regulation for what, and two, to also be clear about the fact that there's often multiple rights that have to be balanced against each other, something that I think is typically the realm of public policy. Uh, but these kinds of deliberations and questions and balancing acts are now happening in boardrooms. And I don't think that's the place where those considerations belong. Yael, I went back and looked at your your TED talk that you gave recently, and you actually said something that very much kind of chimes with what Maricha said. You said, you know, governments must define the responsibility for the real world harms being caused by these business models and impose real costs on the damaging effects they're having to our public health, our public square, and our democracy. I guess I'd put the same question to you. Where, where do you think the emphasis should be at the moment? Thanks, Justin. I'm going to echo a lot of the same sentiments that we just heard from Richa. So, you know, I like to, before delving into my actual proposals and ideas for certain legislation, I like to take a step back and just think, what is government's role in a society? And government's role in our society is to protect its citizens, whether it's to protect our citizens from foreign adversaries, whether it's to protect our citizens from bad consumer practices, whether it's to protect our public health, that is their role. And at the same time, while protecting our economy and, and allowing private enterprise to flourish. And I think there's so much noise right now, which I would argue, I would be very cautious and really dig into where the noise is coming from about how government touching anything in the tech industry will destroy the internet, will destroy technology. And, and I would argue, I think at this point, hopefully we can all agree that something has to change. I mean, many of us have been saying it for years, but hopefully after what happened on January 6th, 
at least most of us can agree, even if we don't agree on the solutions, that something is misaligned in how our information ecosystem is working. And so if we can start with that high level idea of something is misaligned, there are things going on that are harming our ability to distill fact from fiction, to harm our ability, which by the way, has I hate to say real world consequences, it's as if to say what's on the internet isn't real world, but has offline consequences. Um, I think we can at least all agree to that. And then the question is, so what do we do about it? I like to really emphasize there's no one magical solution that is going to fix everything and make us a lovely, flourishing, wonderful democracy again. And that's the other problem. People love to argue. If I happen to be arguing for one policy, immediately you'll hear the argument, but that doesn't address this. So I think it's a, it's a large puzzle. I think when it comes to regulating social media, three really important components of that puzzle are accountability, which is what I focus on most. And that's not just Section 230, but that's a huge part of it. Obviously, antitrust, should we have these monolithic, huge companies dominating this space? And then the third is very much, obviously, privacy, data rights. I know there's more, but those are the three major components. And I would just caution people, when you hear someone immediately launch and say, that's just a distraction, this is the part we have to fix, I would argue that actually they're all equally important. We have to figure out how to make our information ecosystem and our technology serve us as opposed to manipulating us and breaking down trust. So that was very high level. I personally focus a lot on accountability, accountability for the externalities that some of these technologies are creating. You kind of mentioned that it's a giant system, giant puzzle. You know, everybody that's out there, whether you're an entrepreneur or, you know, a member of the public or however you think of yourself, you're all kind of living in the puzzle to some extent. We're all living in, in the interstices between how all these different pieces fit together. But Marita, you wrote a report, I should say, just a bit ago, where you kind of suggested that you see the puzzle pieces maybe coming together in Europe and in the U.S., that there's an opening right now for certain things to change. Can I just get you to maybe take that on for a minute? What is this possible alignment you see between what's happening in the United States and Europe? Well, I think the, the one thing that's really clear, and it's been hinted at in your various comments uh, already, is that Americans perhaps finally have come to realize how fragile and how precious democracy is, and that you cannot just assume because of stated good intentions or because of hope or because of promises of some kind of democratizing effect of, of tech systems being built that it will actually work out that way. Um, you know, when I was a member of European Parliament, we would always, and this is, it may sound like pessimism, but I actually think it's realism, we would always try to assess what could be the worst way in which X, Y, and Z is used. So you can't just go with the people who are already on board, who are well-willing, and therefore I think this notion of self-regulation is so fraught because, you know, Maybe there's a couple of companies, and I think we can have a long discussion about the, the genuine, you know, uh, intentions there. But, you know, maybe you have a couple of companies who are willing to comply and do some, some transparency and some due diligence, et cetera. But there will always be companies that don't. And so you have to have some kind of benchmark against which everyone is going to be measured. Otherwise, it's completely unfair. And that process of building benchmarks in order to protect those public interests, to protect democracy, everything that y'all just said, you know, that process has been 
delayed for too long, particularly by the United States, because given the power of its particularly social media industry and, and other tech companies that are very popular around the world, what happens in the United States is vital for what happens in the rest of the world. Now, that doesn't mean that there has not been anything done. Uh, as mentioned in, in the EU, some of these concepts are slightly more evolved. Uh, what I hope is that the rallying around the shared interest of protecting democracy will be a new kind of organizing principle along which the EU and the US, but ideally many other democracies around the world can work together. And I realize that the First Amendment is a very uh, large fence around addressing anything content related, but therefore it's important to also look at other aspects of what happens like algorithmic amplification, data collection, this balancing of rights that I talked about, um, questions of transparency of the processes that tech companies use. So when they say they're going to, for example, ban neo-Nazis, do they succeed? If yes, how? If not, why not? I mean, there are so many more levers that are available than just the question of whether speech should be on or off and who should decide that I think it will be a challenge, but it's not impossible. And the awareness part is what creates the most momentum, I would say now. The, the awareness part in the United States for unfortunate reasons, I have to say. I mean, for people like myself who've been warning about this for a long time, it was a strange kind of moment of feeling like, now you see what we were trying to warn you against. But of course, we had hoped that it would never manifest, like the attack on the Capitol or uh, the enormous impact of disinformation on the elections and uh, on, on anti-vaxxers and all that stuff. I mean, it's just sad that so much harm was needed for the wake-up call. But now that it's there, let's use it for the best. I want to kind of push the conversation maybe a little bit uh, towards the question of antitrust, because one of those areas that you um, identified where there may be uh, some convergence in the European Union uh, and the U.S. kind of politics at the moment is in the realm of antitrust, where, again, I think EU is a bit further along, but it feels like the vectors are kind of coming together in the U.S. as well. So, Jason, assuming you can hear me and we've got audio from you, maybe I'll put you on the spot on that one. Um, do we think antitrust is uh, uh, action that can be expected in the U.S.? And, and what do you see going on in the, in the EU? Yes, absolutely. The intersection between antitrust and kind of competition policy, if you will, and then what's going on with, with privacy and data, I think, is, is probably the most critical developments. And we're seeing the different governments step in. Some are further ahead than others, in particular the United Kingdom with their competition report, specifically focused on Google and Facebook, and then Australia over the last two years, certainly the European Union. And, and what we're seeing now is this kind of gravitation around, we have two companies that are now effectively gatekeepers. They have extraordinary access to data and they more than anybody are deciding what information flows freely, where it goes, how it gets monetized. In the case of Google playing all sides of the monetization schemes. You know, I think that that debate's now mostly over and now lawmakers are stepping in. And really in the last two weeks, you know, we saw the, the news and the new law, which certainly um, is intended to address that imbalance in bargaining power you know, through a public policy solution that, you know, has said, hey, journalism is super important. Let's find a way to to better fund it. Um, that discussion will be on the table at the end of next week with uh, Congress and the House Antitrust Subcommittee. And 
Um, and in Brussels, they've got now the Digital Markets Act and Digital Services Act, which are in draft, but, but also are very much aligned in terms of solving the core problem. They have different solutions and tactics at it. So uh, the world has woken up. All of these governments, all these regulators are sharing information. It's actually more bipartisan than most people realize. And, you know, and all parties in Australia agreed. Um, actually, the Republican parts of the antitrust subcommittee are very much driving um, towards solutions, too. So um, it's very positive development. It's changed quite a bit in the last couple of years. You know, there seem to be there's different things going on. There's enforcement, there's, you know, uh, fines and, and other types of, uh, you know, actions that may be taken against the big tech companies. Um, there are calls for interoperability standards and, you know, other types of redress. Things like the Australia came into the news very much around Facebook and the media was around bargaining power for, you know, the media in the ecosystem. What about breakup? Does anyone here, I'll open it up, see, see the breakup of some of these companies on the horizon? Could Facebook or Google be taken apart? Could Amazon be taken apart? I'll jump in just to, yeah. to quickly weigh in. I, you know, the, absolutely, if you saw the remarks from the chair of the FTC just the other day, then she said, you know, we wouldn't have filed the FTC suit if that wasn't, I mean, that's what they're asking for. So with Facebook and certainly with, with Google, particularly the Texas-led advertising case heads in that direction. So I think that's, you know, that's the intention. Now that's going to take a long, long time. There's also behavioral changes that are being introduced too that I think could be more immediately impactful. Again, you know, with the new law that's being looked at, well, one in Australia was being looked at in Europe. Um, even like the, in Germany, the cartel office has a very interesting decision against Facebook that kind of structurally separates them without actually doing it where they can't share data across their, their apps and products. So I think it's a combination of both structural and behavioral solutions. Yeah, maybe I'll add something slightly more political because, you know, this call for breaking up companies also implies that it's kind of a a political decision. And it may be slightly more political in the US, but in, in the EU, one of the great strengths of antitrust enforcement and regulation is actually how it's seen as non political and how much it's trusted despite, you know, an erosion of trust throughout. So even when I was a member of the European Parliament, I always refrained from making a call for some kind of antitrust action in one or the other direction um, and really looking at how uh, the, the um, mandated authorities were well-resourced enough. And I think that's a real challenge with digitization because, you know, new kinds of contexts emerge in which uh, traditional principles of antitrust may be at stake. Let me give you one example. This is key in the U.S. uh, more so than in the EU, but it's still a very important measure of antitrust violations, which is the question of whether a consumer has unduly paid too much. So the idea is that if, for example, uh, dairy farmers make price agreements over milk, that the, the price is paid by the consumer who just pays too much because there is no real competition between these dairy farmers. And the same can be said for all kinds of contexts in which uh, antitrust may be violated. But when you have so-called, and this is where we get to another big discussion point, free services being offered, where the price you pay is measured in data and not in money, then the metric doesn't work anymore because how are you going to assess whether the consumer is treated fairly or unfairly? So there are needs for some updates on antitrust. And and these discussions are quite parallel in the EU and the US, questions about how to handle free services, but paying with data, 
questions about what is the market. And that's something that um, Jason also hinted at, meaning, you know, if Google says, oh, we're competing ourselves to death in the email market, and then we suffer so much when we talk about maps and navigation, we're so many competitors. And similarly, you know, with calendars and, oh my gosh, and video streaming, look at what's happening to us with TikTok and everything. It may sound convincing if you isolate all the functions, but if at the end of the day, all the data ends up in one pile, uh, then the question is, what is the market? Mm -hmm. Another huge, you know, fundamental question being asked now by antitrust experts. And so I think the beauty of antitrust is that some of the pillars are consistent throughout roughly a century now, and that the regulators are powerful. Some of the challenges are how do they update these principles for the digital era and uh, how should they well, navigate now. And I personally think that the question of to break up or not to break up is a fairly limited one if you look at the various tools that antitrust com competition regulators actually can use. My uh, former employer, The Economist, had a cover story on that this week, and they seem to come out tepidly in favor of the oligopoly and not a breakup. Let me, I, I want to kind of go back to some of the speech issues because we, you know, we started off talking about those, and I want to bring Yael into this in particular. On speech, where are we at, Yael, and, and what, do you, what do you hope will happen? Sure. I think I like to start from a place of part of the complication is when we narrow the conversation to being about speech. And what I mean by that is, of course, freedom of speech in the U.S. is one of the most sacred possible things that make us who we are as a democracy. And when you start a conversation with being about freedom of speech, you're already setting it up for and therefore we can do nothing. What I am concerned about is less about the actual, I mean, I'm concerned about it, but rather than focusing the conversation about actual speech and about should a company like Facebook or Twitter be responsible for the fact that maybe I said something hateful or terrible on their platform, I would like to shift it to my concern is what are the design decisions and what is the company doing with that speech? I want to look at the tools as opposed to the actual speech. And what I mean by that is, I'll just give an example, just to try to make it a little bit more sort of real. You know, we have a community of builders and entrepreneurs here. And often when I sit down with builders and entrepreneurs and, I, and they have the best intent in the world. And so therefore they believe their product will only be used for good because they have good intent similar to what Maricha said in the beginning, I always go to, but what about when this bad actor manipulates your product to do X? And then the whole conversation sort of goes in a different direction. This is why it's important for builders to think about these things. Let's look at, for example, the question of, um, let's look at the Boogaloo Boys. So the Boogaloo Boys, I've said this before, I'm going to repeat myself a bit. You know, you can say that it is not Facebook's responsibility if a white supremacist uh, spews hatred on their platform because it is their right as an American under the First Amendment to say whatever they want. Okay, so let's look at the case where there was an individual, two men, who met in a Facebook group who hatched out a plan to attack law enforcement and then went to Oakland during the Black Lives Matters protest and under the cover of the protest went and killed uh, a federal officer. And these two men were members of the Boogaloo Boys group. And here are the questions I would just ask. And this is where regulation, in my opinion, needs to think about this differently. What if you found out that those two men 
both met, I mean, do you think it's wrong for Facebook to let the two of them espouse whatever sort of hatred on their platform? I would argue both sides of that equation. Like I could see both sides of that argument. But what if you found out that Facebook's algorithm was the one that actually steered one or both of these men towards more and more hateful content, that they didn't actually come onto the platform looking for Boogaloo Boys groups? Or what if you found out that their recommendation engine were the ones who actually recommended a Boogaloo Boys group to these one or two of these men based on what they had gathered and inferred about these men as a recommendation? Would you then think that maybe Facebook bears some responsibility? Or what if you found out that Facebook actually popped up a recommendation for these two men to connect. I mean, these are the tools that unfortunately we never get to the point of being able to find that out because Section 230 has been so overly interpreted to give these companies immunity from ever having to answer those questions with the false flag of making it about speech. Because again, I'm not asking, should Facebook be responsible for the fact that these two men were hateful? I'm asking, did their algorithms steer them in a certain direction? Did their recommendation engines recommend them into a group? Were they aware that they were plotting out a crime, which the Tech Transparency Project had been warning about for months? And were they negligent in doing anything about it? And again, if let's say that a relative of that federal officer who was killed wanted to have her day in court and ask these questions, Facebook would say Section 230 and likely, I guarantee you, the judge would throw the case out before we even get to the discovery phase of finding out if their tools were responsible. So that's the difference, right? I like to not make it about speech and make it about how are your algorithms cur curating my content? How are your recommendation engines steering me towards groups I might not have actually been looking for? And how are your targeting tools targeting me with ads that might in any way persuade me in a certain direction? And I do think it's possible to look at the tools that these companies have. So again, with Section 230, the problem is at its core, it's not necessarily a bad law. It's the way it's being overly interpreted to free these companies of any responsibility for the way they are operating at all. That's my concern. You know, Marianne Franks wrote this article recently about Section 230, and I loved that she pointed out such a simplistic example. A bartender can go to jail for serving a customer alcohol if that customer then goes and gets in a drunk driving accident. They can go back and arrest the bartender for being responsible, for being negligent and enabling this person to go out and get in an accident. Why in the digital world is nobody held responsible for how their tools are also enabling and facilitating and connecting and, and, and facilitating some real crimes? It's the only space where there's no duty of care, where there's no accountability built in. And it shouldn't be so difficult to take actual laws of duty of care in the real world and say they also apply online. It's just that the tech industry is so insured that it's too complicated. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand algorithms. Like this, There's a lot of noise out there to make sure that we don't start going down that road. But the idea that it's the only industry where it's completely hands-off and we're using this sort of weaponization of the First Amendment as our reasons why, I think we have to get beyond that now. 
Maybe I'll add just two thoughts. One is that I think the first movers in actually demonstrating that the platforms are not neutral connectors of supply and demand, which is basically the the notion, uh, you know, to argue for for liability exemptions, is the platform companies themselves. So um, they intervene to, to make sure you don't see pornography or that you don't uh, see, see far-reaching conspiracies and are actually proactively directed to the World Health Organization or whatnot. So I think this intervention has already started happening for, for uh, a couple of years now, but it's always done with the aim of optimizing profit, not optimizing, let's say, well-being of people or safeguarding of public order or democracy or, or whatnot. So I think that's one argument that, legally speaking, would probably carry some weight to say that the companies themselves are actually not living by the principle. Um, Secondly, I see some comments about, you know, what's happening in Myanmar, uh, shutting down of the Internet, regulating the Internet. Now, I think we have to separate out the Internet from requirements that we place on big corporations. Uh, I really wish we still had an open Internet. Uh, again, I think the the first movers are not democratic lawmakers that are going to um, make the the open internet less less open or uh, less connected. First moves have already happened by authoritarian regimes, but also by corporate uh, entities that have created a private set of rules that are not uh, optimizing freedom of expression or openness or connectivity. But what is the fundamental difference between, let's say, interventions in a country like Myanmar, which is ruled by a military government, or uh, interventions from democratic governments, is, of course, the legitimacy and the processes. So um, I've often heard that, you know, the European Parliament should not vote for X, Y, and Z because otherwise China would do uh, A, B, or C. And the idea is we should not be... um, pushed to do one thing or the other because another country may seek to take parts of it or seek to legitimize its its otherwise undemocratic steps with with bits and pieces of our regulation. It's actually sort of taking the worst example and preventing the best examples from happening. Um, I think that that's problematic. And I, I think it's perfectly legitimate to indeed, as Yael said, make sure that there are rules for tech companies, just like there are rules for other companies, thankfully there's rules for pharma, you know, very complicated, extremely complicated. But imagine where we would be now without any kind of, you know, rigorous testing of vaccines, uh, solid information about what the risk is for a patient, who is responsible to inform, et cetera. There are many ways in which we can better safeguard democracy and the public interest. And to say that that makes us look like China, I think is buying into the arguments of authoritarian regimes themselves. Pardon the, the pun, but I would just amplify what, what Yael said regarding the importance of the algorithms and the decisions to spread the focus on censorship or speech expression is I think exactly where Google and Facebook and, and their policy folks want the, the debate to be because it's a much safer place for them. And so, but it's really about how the decisions they make uh, within the algorithm to to give velocity and and reach to to content or in advertising, they're the same kind of secret sauce and the micro targeting of that to audiences that are receptive of it without any sort of context or counter speech is where a lot of the toxicity is happening. One comment to kind of capsulate all this: I, 
you know, whether it be privacy or whether it be content liability, CDA 230, all these issues are kind of downstream from, from the fact that we have two companies that, um, that have the extraordinary power to, to collect data. Most of the data that Google and Facebook collect, I, I mentioned this on a podcast I did yesterday, most of the data they collect is from other people's services. It's not from their own, uh, where users are choosing to interact with Facebook or Google. It's, it's actually when they're choosing to interact with somebody else's app or website. And so that, uh, that lack of agency that the individual has over their data um, is, is a critical piece of, of all of this. And we've, we've arrived at a system where the user is now being treated as a bunch of, you know, data points on who they are. Um, Roger McNamee calls it like a voodoo doll of, you know, where it's, it's representative of who they are and an extraordinary amount of data about each of us that is being matched up for the purpose of micro-targeted advertising. And we've lost our sense of self and our own agency over our, who we are. And publishers, the same thing has happened. Publishers have no real control over the data that Google and Facebook decide to pull out of the ecosystem and use. And so they've devalued brands, they've devalued context for the publisher that, that Google and Facebook have. So, so we're now just commoditized um, to, to uh, you know, delivery vehicles to provide you know, data that the user um, is, is, is uh, allowing to leak into the system and data that the advertiser has and wants to match up and Google and Facebook facilitate that. Can I give a real world example of why that's dangerous? <laughs> because sometimes we talk about this and it's really high level. And then I really, I'm the type of person who likes to break it down for someone who's not a technologist. I mean, these, these are things that we would all, I think, realize shouldn't be allowed and yet they are. So Facebook, for example, why do I focus a lot on their micro-targeting practices and how their advertising works? Not because I think political advertising is the biggest threat, actually, but it should actually be the easiest thing to regulate because it is what they're monetizing. So we know that they go through this personalization process. They follow us around the internet. They, you know, they put us into different categories. Whether they're doing it well or not is besides the point because they're selling the idea that they're doing it well to advertisers. And you know, if an advertiser knows if I'm the type of person, I have a dog now. So if an advertiser knows that I'm the one to advertise dog food towards, it's, it's really not the end of the world to me. I don't really care about that. But those exact same tools are also sold to political operatives and to people who want to exclude people. Let's not talk about who's targeted. Let's talk about who's excluded. For example, Facebook, I mean, there was a lawsuit against Facebook. They were allowing people who are advertising for housing to exclude Black people from their ads. That's, that's, that's illegal. And Facebook will claim that, you know, oh, tell us and we'll take it down. Tell us that you see these ads that are breaking the law and we will take them down. As opposed to we will preemptively make sure that we are not allowing that. And where does that matter for political speech? You know, when I was at Facebook, our team put together a very like comprehensive plan on how to make sure that voter suppression wasn't happening in ads. And I will be frank, it was rejected. I've written about that. We didn't put the plan into place, even though the civil rights audit was going on at the time. And I kept saying, I get that it doesn't scale globally, this plan we are putting together right now. I'm a global thinker, but right now you're asking me to protect the U.S. midterms. And if we even allow one ad to get through that targets a specific vulnerable community to push a message to them to not go out and vote, that would be a horrific thing for Facebook. That would be worse than a million bad ads targeting the wrong people with Nikes or other sneakers. And, and this is why it matters so much. 
the way they're hoovering up our data, it's not just for nothing. It's so that they can put us in these categories and then let advertisers target us with ads. And that includes political operatives. And that includes excluding people, not just targeting people, but actually excluding people. And so I just, I I really want people to wrap their head around the real, like, what does this really mean? So yeah, just want to throw it that Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you for landing that in the more real world um, impact. The only other thing I'll add, Justin, because you asked about where we are on regulation around privacy, and I won't get into the weeds, but Europe, you've got GDPR. It's a solid law. It hasn't really been enforced yet, particularly around Google and Facebook, who have used their bundling power and and kind of violated what GDPR is, which is informed specific consent, narrowly, you know, purposes that you can actually decide whether or not you want them to be able to do it. They've greatly violated that, and we'll, we'll hopefully see some enforcement of that soon. And then California, we have a strong law. It's even got an update that will go into play January 22 called CPRA, and it solves a lot of issues around issues we're talking about. In particular, the, the ability to globally opt out from being tracked by the parties that you're not intending to inter- interact with. Um, that's in the law. It freaks out the, uh, the ad tech complex, as I call it. And a lot of other states, there's probably like 20 or so bills right now, just since the first of the year that are in state legislatures. And hopefully they're all paying attention to that, that global opt out signal and the way it works. Um, so it's things are moving. I don't think things will be likely to move federally um, very quickly uh, because of the strong California law and a bunch of other nuance to that. Technology also is becoming our regular here. Apple is you know, eliminating the ability to track using their IDFA, their identifier which, you know, Facebook's created kind of a, a national campaign and tried to fight off it based on a lot of kind of uh, insincere reasons. And the reality is they're just worried about their own business. Thank you. And I, I just want to, um, with the, the last three minutes we've got, so maybe a minute to each of you on this, where do you see any opportunity in the kind of evolving regulatory and kind of legal frameworks that we see in the EU and, and in America, for instance? You know, any sort of, you know, ad, advertising is a huge piece of, you know, it's 80, almost 80% of the, the revenue for our publishers in the digital space. So anything that helps in the advertising space to create uh, a tighter chain of command, if you will, um, including around data and privacy, I think is, is clear white space. Same applies to on the subscription side. But, you know, we need to get back to direct trusted relationships. Um, and that happens to intermediaries too. But, but having tight relationships that are built on trust and transparency and the issue is that technology is by default, you know, the innovation we're seeing, innovation around technology we're seeing is all good, um, supportive of that, but it's allowed intermediaries to step in and, and break and fragment and, and cause issues. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity in that, that space of tightening up the chain of command and, and the trust relationship. These are bad times for big tech. These are great times for smaller tech, for civic tech, for truly innovative companies. So I don't think there's much to worry about. More fairness in the economy has perhaps a few uh, who suffer and many, many who benefit. So uh, I would say enjoy the space that is opened up for you uh, when you are an entrepreneur and hoping for fairer treatment. Um, plus one to what Maricha just said. And on top of that, I would also say if there's so many in our community who want to rebuild trust and build tech that will combat disinformation or all, all the things they're building, I wouldn't necessarily think having a few guardrails in place is a negative. 
It allows you to do some of the things you want to do without having to explain to shareholders why you're doing it because you're actually complying with the guardrails that are meant to be able to protect the public. And sometimes if you were to actually support legislation being written correctly and written well, it could actually help you to have the reasons to do the right thing without it threatening the way you interact with your shareholders. So that would be my final thought. I want to thank our panelists. Uh, to, so thanks very much to Yael and to, to Maricha and to Jason. Thank you for joining us. Take care, everybody. Bye, everyone. Nice to see you. That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at Tech Policy Press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, our guests, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.